we are racing toward the finish of Daniel's prophecy. If you brought your Bible this morning, I'm going to invite you to take it once more, turn to Daniel chapter 11. Please understand my struggle as you read or if you study the book of Daniel, chapters 10, 11, 12 should all be together. It's, it's one unit. But like I told you before, I'm not sure how to preach 78 verses in one message. And when I started taking it apart and I looked at chapter 11 and it's 45 verses, I realized I couldn't preach 45 verses in one message either, and so we split it. And last week we looked at the first 20 verses, and this morning we're going to look together at the first or the second portion of this, beginning at verse 21 and going through verse 45 as we conclude this 11th chapter and move toward the conclusion of this book. I, I learned a long time ago, if you want to stir people up, if you want to see a debate or maybe even just a good fight break out, the only thing you've got to do is bring up the topic of the end times, toss the Antichrist out there, and then step back and watch people go at it. And because everyone has an opinion, and some of their opinions are based in Scripture, many of their opinions are based on what they heard some preacher say once upon a time, uh, some of them have an opinion based on a book they read, or heaven help us, a movie that they saw. But it's not just the folks in the church. Several years ago, I took part in a survey. I didn't realize what was happening when I filled out the survey until I read the article that came out from Lifeway. But Lifeway had polled a number of pastors of all denominations across the country trying to figure out what their beliefs were about the end times. And basically, let me just kind of give you a summary. I think I may have printed it in the worship folder this morning in my article. If you want to take a look at it, you can. But let me just give you the nutshell version if I can. Don't get scared, all right? But Baptists and Pentecostals, are the most likely to believe in a literal antichrist. And we are the ones who are most likely to believe in a rapture event where the church will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Now, you know, you, you go through this whole thing and it breaks down along denominational lines and, and you find out who's more likely, who's not. And here's another interesting thing to me was the fact that it seems the more educated a minister becomes, the less likely they are to believe what is in this book. Now, I'm just going to go ahead and lay it all here on the table for you, okay? I'm a Southern Baptist. I have an earned doctorate. I believe the Word of God is true from beginning through maps. All right, there's not any of it that is not accurate, is not true, is not believable, or should be pushed aside. I really do, folks. I'm just telling you, I, I, I think we've got to hold on to this. When, when we turn loose of this book, we have nothing else to hold on to. And so, as we're moving toward the end of chapter 11, we've got to engage in this conversation. What happened what happened after Daniel, before Christ, and what happens at the end of this chapter? And what does that mean for us? So I want us to read these verses. 
and we're going to spend our time together here, and I'm going to do my best to explain quickly, concisely. I know it's not thorough. I know it's not complete. I've already had people asking me questions, and I've sent them towards some, some resources where they can do further research and reading uh, because there is more than I could possibly share with you. But the most important thing I can share with you is the Word of God. Daniel chapter 11. If you found verse 21, I'm going to invite you, if you can and will, to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's holy word. Last week, we were following the sequence of leaders in the northern kingdom of Syria and the southern kingdom of Egypt, focused on the end in Syria, we're told in verse 21, he will be succeeded by a contemptible person who has not been given the honor of royalty. He will invade the kingdom when its people feel secure, and he will seize it through intrigue. Then an overwhelming army will be swept away before him. Both it and the prince of the covenant will be destroyed. After coming to an agreement with him, he will act deceitfully, and only a few people he will rise to power. When the richest provinces feel secure, he will invade them, and will achieve what neither his fathers nor his forefathers did. He will distribute plunder, loot, and wealth among his followers. He will plot the overthrow of fortresses, but only for a time. With a large army, he will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south. The king of the south will wage war with a large and very powerful army, but he will not be able to stand because of the plots devised against him. Those who eat from the king's provisions will try to destroy him. His army will be swept away, and many will fall in battle. The two kings, with their hearts bent on evil, will sit at the same table and lie to each other, but to no avail, because an end will still come at the appointed time. The king of the north will return to his country with great wealth, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant. He will take action against it. And then return to his own country. At the appointed time, he will invade the south again. But this time, the outcome will be different than what it was before. Ships of the western coastlands will oppose him, and he will lose heart. Then he will turn back and vent his fury against the holy covenant. He will return and show favor to those who forsake the holy covenant. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant. But the people who know their God will firmly resist him. Those who are wise will instruct many. Though for a time they will fall by the sword or be burned or captured or, sp- or plundered, When they fall, they will receive a little help, and many who are not sincere will join them. Some of the wise will stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made spotless until the time of the end, for it will still come at the appointed time. Verse 36, the king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the God of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed, for what has been determined must take place. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers, 
or for the one desired by women, nor will he regard any God, but will exalt himself above them all. Instead of them, he will honor a God of fortresses, a God unknown to his fathers. And he will honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He will attack the mightiest fortresses with the help of a foreign God and will greatly honor those who acknowledge him. He will make them rulers over many people and will distribute the land at a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south will engage him in battle and the king of the north will storm out against him with chariots and cavalry and a great fleet of ships. He will invade many countries and sweep through them like a flood. He will also invade the beautiful land. Many countries will fall, but Edom, Moab, and the leaders of of Ammon will be delivered from his hand. He will extend his power over many countries. Egypt will not escape. He will gain control of the treasures of gold and silver and all the riches of Egypt with the Libyans and Nubians in submission. But reports from the east and the north will alarm him. And he will set out in a great rage to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch his royal tents between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain. Yet he will come to his end. And no one, no one will help him. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask you this morning to bless the reading of your word. And I pray now that in these moments we have, you would give us insight and understanding. You would help us to grasp your truth. Father, it's as if we're trying to put together a puzzle. You already know what all it is. We never will in this life. But Father, we pray you'd give us insight and help us to understand that which is most important for us to grasp today. I pray you'd speak to our hearts. Help us to see truth, to embrace truth, and to surrender to the truth. Oh, Jesus, you are the truth. Now teach us, Father. We're ready to learn. For we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. This morning, obviously, looking at these passages, these verses, we're, we're going to look at two men who oppose God's people. Virtually all scholars, without exception, would tell you that verses 21 through 36 point to the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes and his persecution of the Jews, the way that he attacked the Hebrew nation and their temple in Jerusalem. But what about verses 36 through 45? What about the back portion of what we just read? If you remember back in chapter 9, we talked about the likelihood of a time gap between verse 26 and verse 27, introduced with a phrase, the end will come like a flood. I believe that there's a similar gap that is found here in this passage between verses 35 and 36, and it is introduced with the phrase, the time of the end will still come at the appointed time. Jesus spoke of an abomination of desolation that was yet to come when he was here and on earth and in the temple in Mark chapter 3. 
Paul used the words from Daniel eleven thirty six when he was writing his second letter to the church in Thessalonica, and he wrote about a coming man of lawlessness, one that the world was still awaiting. He was talking about the coming Antichrist of the last days. Once again, it seems to me that if we're going to deal with these verses, just like we did last week, we've got to break it into two sections, and those two sections are not evenly divided, but that's all right. We're going to do it anyway because we have to start where we started, and that means that we have to begin with he whom God calls contemptible, Antiochus Epiphanes. History is not kind to this man, nor should it be. And let me just ask you a question. How many of you all have lately heard these words? anti-Semitic. Anybody heard that lately? Been in the news a little bit? If you've been paying any attention to the news, you've heard about someone being anti-Semitic or being anti-Semite. Well, I want you to understand something. Anti-Semitism is not a new problem in humanity. It's not a new problem in our world. It's not something that just arose in the 20th century with Nazi Germany. Anti-Semitism is about as old as mankind himself. In fact, if you want to just say, well, how far back can you go with it? I can guarantee you we can at least go back as far as the book of Exodus. We can at least go back that far. But in the Old Testament, the ultimate, the worst anti-Semite on record is this Syrian general who became the king that we know today as Antiochus Epiphanes. We start reading about him in verse 21. Let me just tell you some things about Antiochus Epiphanes. For lack of a better way of saying it, he was a smooth operator. This guy was slick. He, he seized power in Syria from Seleucus IV. By the way, Seleucus died of poisoning. All right? And, and if you go back and you look in verse 20, it says of him that he would be destroyed yet not in anger or in battle. Well, he didn't die through assassination. He didn't die in battle. He was poisoned. It was slick. He should have been succeeded by his son, Demetrius I. But that didn't happen. Didn't happen because when you look at verse 21, it tells you what did happen. Talking about Antiochus says he will be succeeded by a contemptible person, that's Antiochus, who has not been given the honor of royalty. He was not of the royal family. He was a general. He was a military man. He will invade the kingdom when the people feel secure and seize it through intrigue. He wooed the people. He swayed them to his way of thinking. Basically, you could put it like this if you want to make it simple. He stole the throne. All right? The Egyptian ruler, as we keep reading here, Ptolemy IV, attacked Antiochus with an overwhelming army. Verse 22 says that that army was swept away. Do you know why? Because Ptolemy was a king. He really wasn't fitted for battle. But Antiochus, remember, he was a general before he became the king. He was a man of military training and military understanding. He knew how to strategize. He knew how to position his forces for success. And even though he had a smaller force, he won a great victory. Then Daniel tells us that Antiochus turned back to go home. But on his way home, he made a stopover. He made a stopover in Jerusalem. Verse 22 
you read about the army being swept away. It says both it and a prince of the covenant will be destroyed. Who is this prince of the covenant? Well, whenever we see of the covenant, we're talking about the Hebrew people because they are the people of covenant. They are God's people with whom God has made covenant after covenant. So when we talk about the prince of the covenant, we're talking about the high priest, the one who administrates the covenant in Jerusalem. So, man, that's a stretch. No, it's really not because in 171 B.C., at the hand of Antiochus, Onias III, the high priest, was executed. Verses 23 and 24 tells he continues to consolidate his power. He does it through deception. He does it through intrigue. He does it through blustering. He does it through making deals and breaking deals. One thing I can tell you about Antiochus, you can question all manner of things, but let me tell you one thing that you cannot question. He dealt without any honor or integrity. And you might say, well, I'm not so sure about that. Man, Daniel was sure about it. God was sure about it in telling Daniel. Would you just take a look? Take a look and see what it says in verses 24 here coming along. It says that he invades, he achieves what neither his fathers nor his forefathers did. He distributes plunder, loot, and wealth among his followers. You know what that means? He buys his following. Basically, what, he was, what it's saying here, how can I put this in modern terminology? If you want people to follow you, give them all kinds of free stuff. Okay? That's it. He's paying them to follow him. But it doesn't stop there. He just keeps going on and on. This man is power hungry. He's greedy. And it says he continues to plot to overthrow fortresses. He wants to conquer every city and every kingdom and every nation and every people that stand in his path. But understand, when it says only for a time, wicked people rise and fall. And mankind always has his own plans, his own thoughts, his own ways that he devises. But mankind can only exceed in his plans until, until his plans meet up against and in opposition to the plans of the Almighty. Friends, you can have great plans for your life. You can have great plans for your, your home and your family and your success and your career. But I want to tell you something. You may have great success within that plan, but when you reach the point where your plan goes against God's plan for your life, it's over. Your success ends at that point. Antiochus had no chance beyond a certain point simply because God always judges the wicked hearts of mankind. North and south, still fighting. Syria and Egypt, back and forth and back and forth, until finally they figured out, you know what, we're going to put an end to this. Now, I told you last week, the reason it's so important for us to understand these happenings between Syria and Egypt is because Israel lies in the middle they're caught in the middle of everything that's going on, so God's people are trapped. They're being drugged back and forth. They're the rope in the tug of war, all right? They're in the middle being pulled on. But look at verses 25 through 28. Look at what happens here. 
This battle goes on. And Antiochus defeats Egypt, but the reason he did it wasn't because of his great army. It was because the king of Egypt was facing people who were trying to subvert him from the backside. In his own kingdom, he had people who were laying traps for him, trying to throw him out of power and trying to take over. Look at verse 27. This verse just struck me. I hope, if you haven't paid attention to verse 27, I hope you will right here. All right, the two kings, the two kings with their hearts bent on evil will sit at the same table and lie to each other, but to no avail because an end will still come at the appointed time. When the two kings sit down to broker peace, they're fixed on evil. They both have their own wants, their own desires, their own will in mind. They're not worried about what God is about. They're not worried about the one who sits upon the throne of heaven. No, they're going to lie to each other. They're going to cheat each other. They're going to try to gain for themselves. I'm just going to tell you something. It never works. It cannot work. Such talks and plans fail because, did you see what Daniel said here, what this this records? The end will still come at the appointed time. The end's not changed by what these men are doing. But if you haven't paid attention to this verse, let me draw your attention to it again and just look at it for what it says. They sit down with each other with evil intent in their hearts. And they lie to each other. Now, I'm just going to step out for a second and make a statement. You can take it for what it's worth. This is why there will never be peace in the Middle East until Jesus comes again. Everyone is unconcerned about the things of God and concerned only with trying to gain advantage for themselves. It will never work. I have been confused by this my entire life. As a young man, as a child, as as a student, I sat and I watched and I wondered, why are we having all these peace talks between Israel and these various groups? Why are our presidents bringing these people to our country and saying, we're going to establish a great peace? No, we're not. You know why? I'm going to put it in Oklahoma term for you. Because God said, "Uh uh-uh. That's it. It's never going to happen, my friend. And if that's what you're banking on, if that's what you're holding out for, if that's what you're placing your hope in and your trust in, you're going to be sorely disappointed. It is never going to happen. Why? Because they're simply trying to, to, to get what's best for themselves. They're not concerned about what God is trying to do or trying to accomplish. And in the end, it all comes to no avail because an end will still come at the appointed time. What's the appointed time? That's the time that God said, that's it. Folks, nothing moves that. It is set. It is set on the calendar of heaven and nothing is going to change it. I don't care how hard men or or women work at it. I don't care how hard our governments work at it. It's not going to happen. 
the end will still come at the appointed time. And when you turn the corner in verse 28, things really start to happen, okay? The king north returns to his own country with great wealth, but his heart was set against Israel. He was bound and determined that he was going to do damage to the people of Israel. He takes action against it and then returns to his own country. He's got the people of Israel in subjection. This is how they live their lives. They are slaves, servants to Syria. But now we begin to see what happens when worlds collide. Verse 29, we read the phrase in the appointed time. It was God's timetable. Antiochus again launches an attack against Egypt. But something strange happened that had never happened before. Did you see it? Look here. Verse 28 going into 30. He launches his attack in verse 29. And it says, but this time the outcome will be different than what it was before. Verse 30. Ships of the western coastlands will oppose him. Literally, the Hebrew says, the ships of Katim. That means... A naval force from Cyprus. Guess who's in Cyprus by this time? Rome. The giant from the northwest is rising. And as he starts to launch his attack against Egypt, all of a sudden he finds out he has an adversary who is meeting him as his forces travel along the coastline. All of a sudden, he's dealing with soldiers he's never seen, with an army he didn't know existed, with a people he had never come into conflict with. He's bumping up against the early movements of the Roman Empire, and we are told right here that he lost heart. And for a man who was a military officer before becoming king, it was embarrassing and it made him angry. And so he turns again on Israel to prove his might. This is where scripture and history interlock and intertwine without question. 167 BC, Antiochus outlawed all Jewish religious practices gathering at the temple to worship the circumcision of children male children the offering of sacrifices it was all outlawed under the penalty of death it was brought to a halt on December the 15th of 167 an idol of Zeus was erected in the temple 10 days later on December the 25th think of the irony in that Sacrifices, including pigs, were made on the altar of God in the temple. This is the abomination that causes desolation that we read about in verse 31. But there were some Jewish people who said, hey, let's just go along to get along. It's okay. Y'all ever feel that way? If that's what the government says needs to happen, it's okay. Just accept it. Just go with it. (laughs) Yeah, well, some folks went that way. But look at what it says in verse 32. The people who know their God will firmly resist Him. What's that about? If you want to know what that's about, this afternoon you need to go home and you need to find a copy 
of 1 Maccabees. You might find it in a Bible, an old Bible you have somewhere. If not, you can find it online. But 1 Maccabees gives us the history of this rebellion. It reveals for us and records how the God of heaven has the ability to protect his people, to defend his temple, and to turn battles so that victory is snatched from the jaws of defeat in the most uncertain of ways. The Maccabees defeated the Syrian army through a series of battles between 166 and 164 B.C., leading up to the rededication of the temple on 25 Chislev, or December the 14th, 164 B.C. This is how God works, folks. It's difficult. Through this process, some of the wise will stumble. But you see, God is at work. It's about refining, purifying, and making his people spotless until the end of time. For it will still come at the appointed time. Transition. We're no longer talking about this one that God calls contemptible. When we turn the, vo- the, the corner in verse 36, now we're dealing with the self-exalting one. The Antichrist. Now, I know a lot of people say, wait just a minute. You, you, you took a jump there that nobody can possibly take. I think we can. I think we can. We're given a clear picture of a false prophet, a false Messiah, who is accepted by the Jews as being their Messiah, erecting the abomination of desolation for the last and final time in a temple that has still yet to be built in the city of Jerusalem. So let's talk about this guy for a few minutes. We don't have nearly as much information about him as we do Antiochus. That means you can all say, But these events, these events that are recorded in verses 36 through 45, they cannot possibly talk about Antiochus Epiphanes. There's no way. First off, Antiochus Epiphanes never exalted himself, magnified himself above every god. Antiochus Epiphanes was a devout follower and worshiper of the god Zeus until his death. It was a statue of Zeus that he placed in the temple in Jerusalem, not of himself. And so it's rather obvious that there's a gap in time between verses 35 and 36 that moves us from the appointed times to the time of the end. And by the way, those aren't my words. Those are the words that you find here. Appointed times you find in verse 27, verse 29, and verse 35. But whenever you move forward and you look at verse 40, it's talking about the time of the end, not the appointed time, the time of the end in the future. So what do we know about this individual? Well, I know a lot of people don't believe he's going to come. A lot of people don't believe he's a real person. They think it's an institution. Or they think it's the embodiment of evil? I don't think so. I think it's a real person. So why do you believe that? Well, because first off, he's a self-deified man. He thinks he's all that and a cup of coffee. Look at what it says in verse 36. The king will do as he pleases. Any man who grants to himself the right to do anything he pleases has concluded that he is God. He is the ultimate authority. He answers to no one. 
Therefore, verse 36 says, he will exalt himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the God of gods. He will be a blasphemer. But he's going to learn the same thing everybody else learns. You can only be successful in foolishness until God's had enough of it. It tells us here, he will be successful until the time of wrath is completed. For what has been determined, get this, must take place. Friends, listen to me. Whether you agree with me, disagree with me, that's your choice. Whether I'm right or wrong, God will decide that and he'll reveal that. But I'm going to tell you something right now, and I'm telling you, I'm right about this. Okay? If you disagree with me on this one, disagree at your own risk. When God says it is done, it's done. When he says he's through, he's through. This individual, it says, will serve a God of fortresses. A God that was not known before. A God of war and destruction. A God unknown in the past. Unknown to his fathers. Can I just tell you something? Satan has always been at work, but he works in the background. He is not open. He is not up front. He is not recognizable so often. And this man will make war against any and every power that might stand against him, rewarding those who serve him and destroying those who will not. He will be driven to reign over all. This is why he is called Antichrist. Because Jesus Christ is Lord over all. And this one wants to be like him. My friend, this is the spirit of Lucifer, the spirit of Satan, the one who rebelled against God and said, I will be like God. Uh Uh-uh. There's only one. And Lucifer found out the hard way he wasn't him. When he was cast from the heavens, you find a description of a great battle in verse 40. At the time of the end, there it is. At the time of the end, the king of the south will engage him in battle. The king of the north will storm out against him with chariots and cavalry and a great fleet of ships. He will invade many countries and sweep through them like a flood. He will also invade the beautiful land. That's Israel. Many countries will fall, but Edom, Moab, and the leaders of Ammon will be delivered from his hand. He will extend his power over many countries. Egypt will not escape. He'll gain control of the treasures of gold and silver and all the riches of Egypt with the Libyans and Nubians in submission. He is the victor, except it's not over yet. Reports from the east and the north will alarm him. There is a force coming. There is a mighty army coming to to meet him, to greet him. So he will pitch his royal tents between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain. Do you know where the beautiful holy mountain is? Hmm. Jerusalem, the holy mountain, the temple mount, the city of God, where the temple of God has stood and will stand again. 
He will make that his home base. He will set up his royal tents between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain. Yet he will come to his end. And no one will help him. It's over. It's done. I love the way that God does this in his word. We have Alexander the Great who gets one verse. We get Antichrist who says, eh, it's over. He's defeated. Nobody helped him. This is great history. It's great prophecy. But I have to ask the same question that I asked last week because I think that it's pointless to study history if we don't understand or learn something from what we've just read and learned. So what can we possibly learn from this period in history and these prophecies that are given? Three simple things, just like I told you last week. Here are the three. Write fast if you're a writer. First, the heart of man is wicked and in need of change. As much as the world changes, nothing changes. So what do you mean? I mean our rulers and our leaders still sit down today with evil intent and lie to one another. And then they turn around and they lie to their own people. It shouldn't be any surprise that it's this way because this is the condition of the heart. How many of y'all believe that the Word of God is true? Just, just out of curiosity. I mean, I, I'd like to think that everyone in this room does, but I'm confident that there's someone who says, well, I'm not really sure. I believe that it's true from beginning to end, and I want you to understand that in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, where we read that the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure, I believe that that is true. Man needs a change of heart. But the one who changes heart hasn't come yet when Daniel's writing this down. But let me tell you a second thing that, that just jumped out of this chapter to me. And it's simply this. Man seeks to control this world, which is God's own possession. We can't accomplish anything unless it is God's will. We will not take control of that which he has said we will not control. We will not accomplish what he says we will not accomplish. If we are going to accomplish anything, it must be in his will, and we must be serving his purpose and seeking his heart. Kings and kingdoms will plot, and they will strategize, and they will make war to change the direction of history, but they will fail. It is all to no avail because history is his story, and it is going to unfold the way that he has written it, and it will conclude when he says that it will end it's God's plan he has set it in motion so that at the appointed times all things will come to pass and he will be glorified one last thing if you haven't heard anything else I've said today I want your ears to perk up if you muted me back at the scripture reading or before I want you to wake up because I'm about to show you three words that every one of us should walk out of here with them tattooed in our brains, stuck in our hearts, and constantly on our lips. Are you prepared? Are you ready? Here they are. This is your final truth. Our God reigns. Our God reigns. There is no other. 
There is no other God beside Him. There is no God who is equal to Him. There is no one who can usurp Him. There is no one who can overthrow Him. There is no one who can subvert Him. There is no one who can turn Him. We are honored to serve the God who reigns. My friends, listen to me. As we read about, think about the Antichrist, and I know there's so much more to to pull in here. Let me just throw a couple of thoughts at you. I want to remind you that Paul, writing to the believers in Thessalonica, in in, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8, he said this, The lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. Antichrist may seem powerful, but he's nothing next to Jesus. John wrote in Revelation 19.20, talking about Antichrist, calling him by another name, says, the beast was captured. Now, I'm going to tell you something. Something is that strong, you don't capture it. But he was captured and thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Who did that? Christ. Christ. Let me me put it to, to you like this, okay? The most wicked man the world will ever see frightens everyone, dominates nations, controls the headlines of the news. This evil, wicked, powerful man will meet his end like that. Because our God reigns. He has no chance when he comes face to face with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Understand history. Evil men come and evil men go. They have always done so. They will do so as long as God allows it. But when the world sees the most wicked man that will ever live, he will meet his demise when he meets Jesus. So what do you get from that? Let me tell you what you get from that. God has not, does not, and never will allow sin to go unchecked, unjudged, and undealt with. The Word of of God is abundantly clear. The Bible says it is appointed unto men once to die. And after that, Judgment. We will give an accounting. Accounting of how we've lived our lives, an accounting of what we have done with the gospel of Jesus Christ, an accounting for every word, act, and deed. For those of us who sit in here this morning, perhaps we're sitting here saying, man, that's kind of a scary thought. Well, it's not a scary thought for me. Because when I give my accounting, all I have to say is, Jesus is my Lord and my Savior, and I have admission into heaven. But there are some who are going to stutter and stammer, and God's going to say, why would I let you into my heaven? They don't have the answer. 
There's only one answer. That's the relationship with Jesus. There is no other answer that will ever gain you admission into heaven, my friend. And that's the reason why we who are brothers and sisters in Christ should pay attention to Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Where he said, Therefore, knowing the terror of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade others. If you don't know Jesus, time is short. And perhaps today is the day when he's calling you. Hear his voice. If you do know Jesus, understand the time is short. It's running out for our friends, our family members, our neighbors. It's time to persuade them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. What will you do? Oh, one day the truth will be revealed. I don't think it's going to be very long. I'm ready to see Jesus. I pray you are. If you're not, I pray you will be before this day is over. Let's bow our heads together. In just a moment, we're going to stand together and sing a song of invitation. Say, well, why would you call it an invitation? Because I'm inviting you, friend. If you're here and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I'm inviting you today to call out to him, to confess your sin, to ask his forgiveness, to surrender your life to him and let him take control to be your Lord and your Savior. What's at stake? Abundant life now and eternal life for the future? If you know you want that, you know you need that, but you're not sure what to do, come take me by the hand. Just tell me, I want that relationship. I won't embarrass you. I won't put you on the spot. I'd like to visit with you. I'd like to share with you from the Word of God how you can become a child of God today. Brothers and sisters in Christ, time's short. Time is short. Who do you know that needs to hear the good news? Are they waiting on you? Why are they still waiting? It's time to share the gospel and let the name of Jesus be made known so that he can transform hearts from dead in sin to alive in Christ. What are we waiting for? Father, I thank you this morning for your word. So challenging, sometimes difficult, but always clear. Father, I pray today that as we've heard your word, now we would hear the voice of your Holy Spirit, even as you speak and you call and you draw. If there's someone in this room who does not know you, and right now you're speaking to their heart, they know, they know they're sinners. We're all sinners. They know they're sinners. They know they need forgiveness. They know they need a Savior. They know there's something more. They just haven't found it. Father, I pray that today they would find it. Draw them. Convict us of sin. Convince us of the Savior. And draw us to Jesus. 
Father, I pray for the church. It's not a building, it's a people. And Father, we must be the church not just when we come together to worship, but when we go outside the walls into the world where you've placed us. Our calling, our commission, our task is to make the name of Jesus known. Father, forgive us where we fail. Call us to greater effort. Now, Father, as your Spirit speaks, may we hear. May we surrender. May we be obedient. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.